2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today.
3: Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
2: me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Holy Human with Leanne Rimes is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome, my lovely friends, to this very special episode of Holy Human. My guest today is a prolific and best-selling author. Gabby Bernstein is also a motivational speaker, podcast host, and a self-described spirit junkie. And she's driven by the mission to help you become the happiest dang person that you know. <laughs> How, you might ask? Well, that's what we're going to find out together on today's Holy Human. Gabby, thank you so much for coming on Holy Human. I am—I'm so excited to have you.
3: I'm excited to be here. I think you're awesome. Oh, so good to be with you.
4: Thank you. I've read many of your books, and I—one of the things I gather and I relate to so much—I feel like you've lived like multiple lifetimes in your 43 years, and I feel that way. (laughs) I definitely feel that way. Almost, I'll be 40 in August, and it's like. Wow, I'm exhausted from the 40 Mm -hmm. years
3: that Mm -hmm. I've lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Well, you've been going, you've been going strong yourself. You've got, you know, you lived a lot of life, a lot of life. Yeah. But it gets so good. It gets so good when you live your life young and then you can get to your middle age. I can't believe I'm saying I'm middle aged, which is too (laughs) weird. But when you can get here and, and be and reap the benefits of the hard work.
4: Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Do you feel like something changed for you at 40? I, I love asking women this because I, I hear, I hear that it does.
3: Yeah. 40. It wasn't really necessarily about 40. It was about 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I well. happened to be, I turned 40. <laughs> when did I turn 40? Was I, I think I turned 40 in 2019. 19. And just before 2020. And then uh, in 2020, I uh, really just kind of got my shit together in the most major (laughs) way. And I I think it was, of of course, a culmination of 16 years of deep personal growth and Mm -hmm. a lifetime of spiritual practice and just really committing to my well-being. But just like everybody else, 2020 was the opportunity to wake up or shut down. Mm -hmm. And so I just was like, let's go bigger. And I— created, some, I, I established like extraordinary boundaries with people. I just went even deeper in my recovery from trauma and just all the, and life. Yeah, And I'm so happy that I came have come out the other side. So yes, it was in my 40th year that I began a real big transition.
4: That's interesting. For me, I know 30 was such a big transitional moment for me. I went into to um to rehab basically like right after I call it rehab whatever you want to call it for anxiety and depression I check myself into a rehabilitation center like the day after my 30th birthday and Mm -hmm. I remember that moment and that that life shift and now 40 for me it's like you're like you're saying reaping the benefits of the last decade of the work that I have done and knowing that there's many deeper levels that life is calling me to go to at this moment. And, yeah. you know, spirituality has been such a huge piece for me. And I think over that last decade, my own spiritual practice has grown deeper. And it's something that I definitely lean on. I so resonate with you calling yourself a spirit junkie, because I, th- <laughs> I think I would call myself one and the same. I was hmm. just wondering, what, why does that title resonate so deeply with you?
3: Yeah, well, I've been on a spiritual quest I think since I came here into the, into the human form. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was also born into a, a very spiritual family, uh, particularly my mother. My mom, my mom was always a spirit junkie. She really is a spirit junkie. She's she brought us to ashrams. We were named by the gurus. I was taught to meditate when I was in high school. Oh wow! And that foundation was always really present for me you know you know like some people when their moms would be like oh my god she got her first like tennis bracelet over my mom was like she got her first tarot deck you know like (laughs) that was where I was growing up uh but it was it was a great thing to have that seed planted and I've been a seeker my whole life and Early, I got I got sober. I, I began my recovery journey at 25, and for me, it was th- first started with with sobriety, and uh, I had I had really been looking for that spiritual connection in all the wrong places, and ultimately became a cocaine addict and a drug, you know, an alcoholic, and at 25 years old, just hit a massive bottom, first bottom, big bottom, and and got sober, and and anyone that's that gets sober through treatment or, or through or through 12 step recovery will really begin to open up to their own, sp- deepen their spiritual connection in whatever form that comes. Typically, right. that's often what happens for us. And so I um, I had the privilege of just really cracking myself open to the spiritual possibilities for my own personal transformation, for a connection to a inner wisdom beyond beyond me, to a connection to a realm beyond my physical sight that I believed and continued to believe devotionally that that is a presence that is by my side and within me and around me at all times. Mm -hmm. And so that started to happen really fast for me in my early recovery. And that's when I started giving talks. And that's when I started writing books. And my second book, I was trying to find a title for it. And I was at the time, I was early in my career doing some group coaching workshop. And there was this 18-year-old girl. And at the time, I must have been like 28 or something, 27, 29. And there was this 18-year-old girl in the group. And she was telling us this. She's like, last week when I left group, I was just so high and I felt so good. And I was looking at the stars and everything was taking, I was taking everything in. And I just, out of my mouth, they said, you're just a spirit junkie. (laughs) And everybody in the room was like, that's your new title, you know. It was just boom. That's my book title. That's going to be. That's how we all self-identified in that room. Mm. And to this day, here you and I are self-identifying as spirit junkies. And to me, what it really means is someone who's who's seeking and who is is open and willing to receive guidance beyond their physical sight and their physical awareness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great way to live.
4: Yeah, it is a great way to live. And I I grew up with religion being such a huge part of my childhood. And spirituality, I don't know, I think I lived in spirituality. Like, as children, I think we are we are so connected Definitely. to spirit. And then everything kind of gets placed upon us and everybody else's points of view and opinions. And then we somehow lose track of or sight of that, you know, that deepest place in us. And I think, I know on my own journey, these last 10 years have been finding or reconnecting with that most innocent piece of myself. And, you know, I think religion, religion kind of cut that off for me for a while too when I was younger, because I, I felt like it was, I don't know, it, it just didn't fit. And it felt like that was the only path. Religion was the only path to God, to spirituality. And so was religion a big part of your childhood or was it, was spirituality and your own kind of journey to to that inner part of yourself, was that more cultivated in your childhood?
3: Yeah, religion definitely was present. Uh, but before I jump into that, because there's so much I want to say about that, I also want to acknowledge something you said, which is that as children we are all so psychically connected. We're so mm-hmm. spiritual. We're so inspired. And then the experiences throughout our childhood begin to, unfortunately, you know, life and particularly for those of us who may not have had secure attachment at home and you know taught resilience and felt safe in our home and or in our system, we 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 cut off from. It's a, in a course in miracles. It's they say it's the descent from magnitude into littleness, mm. or the moment that we forgot to laugh. And mm. Oh wow! Yeah, big <laughs> That's one, right? Sad. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's so sad. It's so sad. And I believe that those of us who find our way back to a spiritual longing, like you, like myself, anyone listening, we begin the journey of undoing the fear-based belief systems that we picked up and remembering, mm-hmm. and you just said reclaiming that innocence, and remembering the love within us, remembering the the greatness within mm-hmm. ourselves and within the presence of that spiritual connection. So we do, in many ways, uh, cut off from—it's like uh, in my new book, Happy Days, I have this whole passage about how we—it's we, 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 as if our soul departs and— we have this, these moments of, of whether they be trauma or small T trauma, big T trauma, whatever it is that happens in our childhood, we cut off from that presence of spirit and we build up a wall against it. And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, th- being on a spiritual path is about unlearning that fear and remembering love. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, so I just wanted to just really drive home what a profound mention that is of where we are when we're children and then mm-hmm. what we have to almost— we almost have to re, we have to reparent ourselves to come back yeah. to that spiritual practice.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: But as I, it um, relates to the religion, I mean I can yeah. speak s- briefly about that. So, um my family wasn't quite religious, but I was <clears throat> brought up in a Jewish home and was very very into and I don't know if this was for you. I mean, you started your career at a young age, but mm-hmm. you know, for me, I think I did too without realizing it, right. because I was the the president <laughs> of this regional that. Jewish youth group, and I was like leading these. Uh, I was leading these like spiritual weekends in these temples throughout Westchester County, and I was How like old this were like, you? like fourteen. Oh my god, you know? I love that! <laughs> like hosting these spiritual retreats and. And fast forward, you know, ten years later, that was what I was doing for my career. So mm-hmm. I think that you know we ha- we can't underestimate the the things we do by choice. Mm. And um, but that but 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 for me, religion has a soft, gentle place in my heart because it was the first introduction to spirituality beyond my mother right. was in a, at a sleepaway camp that was Jewish and in these retreats and and just opening up my awareness to what that meant.
4: I love that. I love that you started that at 14. That's so cool. That's like me walking on stage at 13. <laughs> That's you know, exactly 13, right. 13 years it. old. Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> in your
4: new book, you, and, and I think a lot of your work in general talks about, you know, the concept of, and goal of happiness. And I was just wondering for you, how do you define that word? Because I think it can mean so many different things to different people.
3: Happiness for me is waking up without anxiety Mm. It's <laughs> God, please can, can I have a day of that? That would be great. <laughs> oh. It's uh, it's um it's it's being present.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: When I when I wrote Happy Days, I started to dive into my own trauma recovery. And that's what I share about in this book. And the in I did a lot of somatic experiencing work, which is mm-hmm. the work of Peter Levine, and it's a body-based therapy. Mind-body therapy, really. Mm-hmm. And Peter says that trauma is the inability to be present. Mm. And so for me, presence is the opposite of being in a traumatic state, mm-hmm. and presence is, is happiness. And a lot of people throw around the word presence in the spiritual community, but I want to really, you know, give it its voice. So presence is that felt sense, as they say in the SE language, the felt sense of, of looking into my son's eyes and just feeling my whole heart explode with joy or holding my kitten and just like feeling her energy just going into me. And um, presence is, is, is meeting you right here, right now, and not thinking about having to jump off the call and get to my dinner, you know, and just being with you and being mm. in the dance of, of, of dialogue. Right. Yeah. And so that's happiness to me. That that's that that presence is something that I longed for my whole life. And finally it's here. And it's so rad. That's amazing. I
4: I find myself going in and out of presence often. And I know you talk about this a lot with the trauma in the body. And like right now, I can feel myself like my body has a lot I have a lot of body anxiety a lot of the time. Although I'm very present and here, it's like And I find myself throughout the day kind of going in and out of of presence and what I'm able to receive. I think receiving is such a huge piece of my own journey and learning to receive. Like you're saying, being with your son and like actually looking in his eyes and being able to, to take him in. I think sometimes when we've lived in trauma or I still have that trauma experience going through the body, it's almost like it puts up a block to being able to receive the fullness of what is in front of us.
3: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think what you're saying also is something to be really compassionate towards yourself because titrating in and out of that presence is actually a really sure sign of your recovery Mm. because you can touch into it and then... The protector part of you, the anxiety, is like, out, too much pressure to pull out. And then and then it can go back in and it can mm-hmm. come back. But the fact that you can even touch into it
1: mm-hmm.
3: briefly is miraculous, right? It's, it's, it's a slow recovery. That's why I like the word recovery, because mm-hmm. it's you're recovering your peace. And when it's blown out because of trauma— it's like you got a lot of broken pieces you got to kind of pull back together. Yeah. And so it's slow and it's gentle and it's a compassionate process and it's a careful process. And it's mm-hmm. not the kind of thing we want to rip off the band-aid too quickly.
4: But we are going to step away quickly for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Gabby Bernstein.
3: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill
5: him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
4: welcome back my loves gabby and i were talking about the sometimes tricky and tender process of healing trauma
3: And I'm trained in something called internal family systems therapy. I've Mm -hmm. done their level one training, and I write about it in Happy Days. And in IFS, we have all these different—it's considered that we have different parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we all have protector parts, and then we have exiled children. So the exiled children are the traumatized little girls in us, you know, the traumatized children in us that that are terrified to come forth. They have shame. They carry fear. They're just—they're locked up. And the way we lock them up is by building up these protection mechanisms and protector parts, and anxiety is a protector part. Mm-hmm. And so we have to thank the anxiety right now for its service in keeping keeping that little girl, you know, not from it blowing up and exploding it all at once, right? So it's right. like it's been doing its job, and slowly but surely, through this journey of the past decade of recovery, it, this this anxiety part has been becoming less and less extreme
1: mm-hmm.
3: and it's not that we want to shun these parts of ourselves like the anxiety part isn't a bad part of you it's not a bad part of me it's it's actually in, in many ways like i can even look back at the cocaine addict part and say thank you you kept me safe and that was all i could do at the time was do drugs you know that mm-hmm. was what i could do then right and so to look and be very fond and compassionate towards these protection mechanisms these protector parts is a is very, very important because it's not about shunning those parts of ourselves. It's about helping them become less extreme. Mm, mm-hmm. And the way we do that is through is through connecting to what in IFS we call self. And for you, you might call that your spiritual presence mm-hmm. or higher self or God. And self is compassionate, courageous, calm, curious, right? It's a creative, and so you know for yourself, and I can speak for this too. When when you're when you're when you're creating music, you're you're in self, right? Mm-hmm. When you're doing this podcast, you're in self. You're uh, when you're, and so when we start to assume those qualities—curiosity, courage, creativity, connectedness—that's when we start to soften the protectors. And yeah. It's a lot in one, you know, little riff. But (laughs) no, it is. It's it's, it's beautiful, though.
4: It's very complex, and you're right about that. Like, I can sit here and know that there are there are so many parts of me that are here. Like, there, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the little girl who's terrified of like getting it wrong, and then there's the protector part of me, which is the anxiety of like, you know, trying to like, you know, trying to protect that little girl and make sure she does everything right. And then there's, Mm. you know, there is self that's here, and I I love that you. I love that you call it self in this book because it doesn't seem so far outside of us anymore. Like it becomes a piece of who we are. Cause I I know, you know, we talk a lot about the higher, we call it higher self, but I almost feel like that's even too far out. It's Mm -hmm. like self becomes, it becomes a piece of you. And I think, you know, when we think about God and spirituality, sometimes it feels so far outside of us. And I, I love that self-peace? I mean, I know you just talked about some of the qualities of self. What's your favorite way to get in touch with that piece of you?
3: Oh, what a beautiful question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Well, I believe compassion for me is the portal to self because one of the ways that I have been able to calm and soothe my protector parts, you know, the controller or they have one called Knives Out, like when she feels judged, she's like, <laughs> fuck you, you know. Right. So, um, or, you know, my former anxiety and, you know, just, you know, different, all these different parts. Do you have a name um, for
4: your anxiety part? Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. But... Um,
3: the, the, well, I would reference that part as the Tasmanian devil because the <laughs> visual I had the visual I had was literally just like this, like, spinning demon, you know, just like this devil going, like, like in circles like a tornado. Right. And so having those visuals really are helpful because it's about befriending and getting to know these parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then when we notice the part, we notice the part and we just notice what's up in our body when the part is there. And we can ask ourselves some questions about it. What do I know about this part? You know, how old is it? Does it have a gender Does it have something it wants me to know, right? Mm -hmm. And then we can ask the parts, what do you need? What do you need right now? And I mean, it's, it's, it's truly profound to have that kind of dialogue. And then when I ask the part what it needs, it usually says something like, I need a hug or I need to breathe or I need to create a boundary right now. And that's when compassion can swoop right in and say, you're doing a good job. You're doing the best you can. I'm here to help. Let's do some let's do some breath. Let's set that boundary. Let's step back. And God, when you that when you start to let that voice of compassion or curiosity or courage, when that voice starts to when that presence of self starts to lead your internal family system, mm-hmm. like all the parts of you or your little family, then you become what Dick Schwartz calls self-led. Mm. And living in that self led way is you know living in living living in communication with God and living living led by inspiration and intuition and and love. I mean, self
4: becomes the greatest parent. Basically, that's exactly
3: right. That's you just <laughs> nailed it. So, self becomes the internal parent. Mm. And so all of the things that we did not get from our parents, and in fact, there's a whole chapter in Happy Days called Reparenting Yourself. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: I lean on a lot of these self-meditations and connecting to self. And the beauty is the more direct access that we get to that self-energy, the more the internal parent can lead. Mm. And what that does is it takes the pressure off. The employees, it takes the pressure off the husband, It takes the pressure off the parents who just couldn't do it. You know, it takes, and it allows you to feel fully resourced and resilient. Yeah, yeah, I know one you of know the where to turn
4: totally. I know one of the you just said it takes the pressure off the husband, and the employees, and I, I know one of the biggest shifts for me because I did depend on at a certain point my husband and you know the people around me to, to fill me up, and it was like mm-hmm. oh. My relationships really started changing when that started to come from the inside. Now don't get me wrong, if I need to lean on people, that's absolutely mm. 100% something that mm. I do and ask for. But I also mm. know that I'm I can be there for myself and there was a point in my life where I'm like I had there was no access to me being able to to self-source. And that was totally. a huge shift in my relationships. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And the codependent part kept you safe for wh- as long as that part did. And that yeah. was what that part needed. And, I, I, you know, I also want to acknowledge that that even when we start to resource and care for ourselves, that does not take away the importance of, of the bond to others. Yeah. You know, I started to study attachment science, and I write about it in the book as well. And the more we establish healthy bonds to partners— Lovers, parents, children, really not our children to us particularly. Right. Those, those healthy bonds are, particularly in romantic relationships, extraordinary because when you have that secure attachment to a partner, it actually gives you the freedom to be more creative.
0: Mm-hmm. It
3: gives you the freedom to be take bigger, more risks yeah. and co- be more courageous in life. So attachment is actually... Our biological necessity. Mm-hmm. And it's not something to be like, oh, you know, I've got it all under control. I'm going to take right. care of myself, you know. But of course, like attachment and the anxious attachment, you know, that codependent behaviors takes us to another extreme. So the the goal is the more we become secure in our own system, the more secure our relationships become.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch upon attachment style because you, you do key into that in this book. And it's such an important part of of your healing. Why is that such an important thing to know when it comes to our own healing?
3: So, it's extremely valuable to understand your attachment style. Our attachment styles are imprinted when we're young mm-hmm. based on our relationship to our parents. Uh in the book I reference four different types of attachment styles, but we can typically what you hear people talk about is the relationship attachment styles and there's three of them and typically as it relates to romantic relationships. But this goes for Pretty much all relationships, there's secure, there's anxious, and then there's avoidant. And those people who have a secure attachment grew up in likely in a household where they could rely on their parents. Their parents were were steady. They created. They saw. They were seen. They were soothed. They were not just feeling safe, you know, literally, but safe emotionally. And they knew there was somewhere to go. Uh, Whereas an anxiously attached person, I'm a formerly anxiously attached person. (laughs) R- grew up in a home where there was, you know, you weren't sure what you were going to get each day with that parent. There was an inconsistency, n- not a lot of reliability. Um, you know, a lot of feelings of, you know, I gotta, I gotta fawn and cling to get that that mm. connection. Um, whereas an avoidant attachment, you know, there was just neglect, and uh, the belief was instilled that if I don't do it, nobody else will. And I had a little bit of both. I was going to say, can you have a mix of yeah, hell yeah, I had both. I had both, and that's (laughs) you know ultimately an insecure attachment style. And um, the more awareness that we have about our own attachment styles, the more we can understand why we are so you know wacky in relationships at times, or why we get so triggered in certain situations, and then we can also understand why we attract certain types of people. And then understanding our partner's attachment styles or our co-worker's attachment styles really helps because you can say, oh, okay, you know, that person is, is you know, super activated right now. They're not crazy. They're just in a flood of emotion because they are, you know, their anxious attachment style has been activated. And, um, you know, I made this quiz. I just actually launched this quiz on what's your attachment style. I just so, took it this morning. <laughs> yeah.
4: Okay, so like, what oh, are hi. you? What are you? I am a, um, an anxious attachment I, yeah. I feel like I'm I'm secu- I'm leaning more on secure, but still very anxious, if that that's makes sense. That's what I was going to
3: say. I was going to say, because you've done so much work, my, my guess is that historically you've been anxious, yes. but there's secure that's so present now. So mm-hmm. it's almost hard to answer the questions because you're probably like answering them like based on how you thought you were, you know? Yes, correct. And that's how I did it too. I was like, if I, if I answer this about, you know, who I was For most of my life, it's very anxious. But Mm -hmm. if I started to answer it, like how I feel today in this moment, it's secure. So I think that's, yeah, we're probably very much in the same boat there.
4: Yeah, for sure. One of the things that you touch upon in your book is chronic shame, which I think is so, it's so present for so many of us. I you know, I've always said like the core wound for everyone, I feel like is I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of whatever it may be. What constitutes chronic shame for you, and then what ways can that show up in the body? How do we know we're in chronic shame?
3: Yeah, chronic shame is shame without repair. So when Mm -hmm. we're children and we don't have that secure attachment to a parent, we don't have the resources to repair the moments of shame that we all are going to experience, right? We're all Mm going to have but the more resilient we are, the more secure attachment we have with our parents, the the more resilient we are. So we can have a shame, shameful experience, but we know I am lovable and I am adequate because that has been what I've experienced in my, my most important attachment bond to my parent or my caregiver. Mm-hmm. And so I'm confident that my son, Oliver, who has a very secure attachment with three different figures, me, my husband, and his nanny, who, you know, who are all extremely valuable p- people in his life— will likely have a pretty good sense of resilience in those moments of shame because he's been brought up with a secure attachment style god willing knocking on all the wood in my office <laughs> um, but um but but for those of us who didn't have that growing up we never were given the ability or the the safety in our nervous system to r- be resilient to rebound in the in those experiences of shame and so when shame is not resourced in the moment or as a child because there isn't that presence of security, what it becomes is a exiled part of us that we just keep running from for decades. And so we run from it with addiction. We run from it with anxiety. We run from it with workaholism. We run from it with relationships. We run from it with all the forms of, of, of uh, protection mechanisms we build up. And it's extreme. And mm-hmm. shame is the most impermissible feeling. And what is underneath the shame the belief that we are unlovable and inadequate. Mm-hmm. My therapist you know, helped me understand this early on, and I was like, holy shit, you know? And <laughs> we actually <laughs> build one. up a lot of dissociated beliefs about ourselves. You know, I lived. I was like, I am extremely adequate, I'm extremely lovable, and I built up a world that was proving that to me, hmm. but I didn't feel it on the inside.
4: Wow, yeah, I relate to that so much. I feel like I had this really inflated, you know, I am bigger than everyone and everything belief as, I mean, I feel like it's also such a part, like you have to have this kind of ego piece of you that can go out and do and be bigger than life. And then, you know, when my whole world can kind of crashing down around me in my late twenties, it was almost like the pendulum swung to the other side of like, I'm horrible, I'm a bad person, I'm, you know, unlovable. And obviously I feel like that belief had been deeply buried underneath that inflated piece of me. And it was like when the pendulum swung, I started to get all of these, like I had fears around things, even performance where I didn't have them before. And it's been a really tender road back to finding the balance of the two. Um... And I'm still on that road because I feel like it's, you know, to bring to bring that authenticity and the the humanness to what I do that can sometimes demand those larger than life pieces of me. Um, it feels yeah, it feels tender and scary sometimes. And it's it is amazing how I've noticed that 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 massive inflated, you know, part of me that used to exist um, was there 100% for protection of these. Yeah. That feeling of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough.
3: Yeah. But also what a good job that part did. What great service and, you know, extraordinary art that part brought into the world. So as Dick Schwartz says, there's no bad parts. Mm -hmm. They just become extreme. And so, you said, oh, you know, I'd like to get these parts into balance. Well, I think that the way is is about helping them become less extreme, right? So mm-hmm. you can actually have that ego part. Let's not even call it an ego, that, yeah. like, you know, forward-facing, profound, whatever you want to call it, right? But it just doesn't—and it, and it can be that big, and it can be that bright, and it can be that exposed in, an, in a non-extreme way. Yeah.
4: And I think that's been my journey, and that's been— Yeah, it's been no it's knowing knowing your bigness and your greatness, but also alongside of that in lies your your deepest humanity. And Mm -hmm. there's such a it's such a profound place to to come from. I'm gonna I'm gonna cry talking about it because it's like, wow. I think the gift once we once we are able to bring that piece of ourselves into the, those or all of those pieces really it's once you're able to bring all of those pieces of yourself into the world like that gift that you're able to not only give yourself but the people in which you're singing to speaking to sharing life with becomes it that gift is so deep and it's so profound and it's I feel it right now it's um it's very moving very very moving
3: it's very moving. What you're referring to is self. Yeah, you're, you're, it is. You're just it, I into was just going to say yeah. it's showing up. <laughs> she's showing right. up. You, you, you're just right there with self, and and it's just bringing self to all the other parts, so that the parts can do their jobs, but not in an extreme way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my controller part is really valuable. You know, she wrote nine books in eleven years, and right. she, you know, she leads a team of twenty five people, and you know, she's. She's really good, but when she's not an asshole, right? right. So <laughs> it's you know it's just just helping them be just just really taking on their role in a way that's that's not so extreme.
4: Yeah, when it comes to to the body, when I related so deeply to your chronic TMJ and your your stomach issues, I mean. Do you think this was, that was a, I know it was a manifestation of trauma, but do you, I mean, was there a specific way that shame showed up in your body for you? Was there, or is it just like trauma in general?
3: Yeah. So shame is the root cause. Anxiety is the protector Anxiety creates the gastro, the jaw, the Mm. the migraines, the insomnia, the, you know, so it's it's almost like these layers are built up. And so the body is just really just consistently responding with anxiety as a way of protecting from feeling into the impermissible shame. Mm. So when we start to recognize that there's that psychosomatic effect and again there's a whole chapter on this one too i mean yeah. there's so much packed into happy days it's great. but um the, the the when we start to understand that psychosomatic uh experience that we're having we can then begin to address yes of always addressing the physical we never want to ignore our body right so i had to of course take you know medication at times for my stomach or whatever it might be but to simultaneously most importantly, address the root cause of the condition, which is the impermissible feelings that we just work so hard to run from.
5: Mm -hmm.
3: And I think actually that's what this book is most about, is really giving people the guided path from trauma to profound freedom and inner peace, which is the subtitle. But that guided path is the gentle, slow, peaceful, guided path of just slowly noticing and touching into and And accepting and acknowledging and healing and soothing and repairing those gentle parts of ourselves that need so much love. And we need to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. I
1: promise. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
5: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast. I've been undercover investigating listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome back friends. Gabby and I are navigating the guided path from trauma. Yeah, I know you keep saying the gentle path, and it's so funny cuz sometimes I just want to rip the band-aid off. It's like, can we yeah. just get to the <laughs> can we get to the other side? Yeah. And I yeah. for so many of us who have I'm sure listening that I've done years and years of work, it can be exhausting and it can feel like mm-hmm. you want to rush. But then I'm, I've been doing detox on my body. And um, I remember when I first started like five months ago, I was like, oh, I'm going to just jump in and take all the things. And I took too much of this dropper that pulls out heavy metals. And I felt yeah. awful for 24 yeah. hours. Yeah, <laughs> And I was like, oh, I learned my lesson. And I think that's mm. true in dealing with trauma. Um, sometimes we have to learn our lesson and, and actually pull the bandaid off and then we're like, oh, okay, I'm going to take this a lot slower. And it is a process. It is yeah. definitely a process.
3: Yeah. We want to be careful not to rip off the bandaid too fast <laughs> yeah. because that can just really shock our system. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's slow.
4: Something you mentioned too that I don't, I think is not spoken about enough in the process of healing is grief and i know for me i've definitely noticed my shame i know i've gotten to that point where i'm like okay i know i know that place place of me really well and now i'm i'm on a new level of understanding grief for myself because and it grief has no timeline like it shows up whenever i mean right before we jumped on here i was crying because i was just there was a moment of of grief for me and a, there's no there's no necessarily, there's no, you know, reason why that it's happening. It just comes. And that's been a new journey for me on my healing is to allow for grief to show up whenever it needs to show up. And I yeah. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about grief and why that is such a huge part of this process of healing.
3: Yeah. For some reason, I'm drawn to try to find this passage in the book where I write about grief at the end of the book. Let me see if I can—while I talk, I'm going to see if I can find something here. Um, But when we experience grief, it's actually a really beautiful sign that recovery is close. Ooh, touching mm-hmm. into grief. Here we go, Leanne. Okay. Whoa. Here, let's see what I wrote. I don't remember. Let's see. Um When we experience a trauma, big T or small T, it's as if a part of our soul departs. There's a splitting off from a sense of safety into exiled parts filled with terror and fear. We become fragmented, frozen, and lost in the subconscious without a clear path. I always felt this split. I just couldn't name it. It was far too scary to face the fact that an innocent part of myself had been so burdened. When I was 27, I did a soul retrieval energy session with a shamanic healer. The session was designed to connect me to the child parts of myself that had been cut off. I remember the shaman saying that there is a little girl around the age of five or six, and she is lost in a forest. The shaman explained that she saw this child filled with fear and terror. At the time, I had no recollection of what had happened in my past, but I felt the truth of her words deep within my body. I knew a part of me had been lost. But I was so far from accepting that truth, let alone grieving it. Mm. Grief is a deep emotion that we often don't feel safe enough to face. It lives beneath the shield of rage and in the shadow of heartbreak. It feels too painful to contemplate the grief of our past wounds. And I'll read one more paragraph. We often consider grief an uh, an appropriate emotion only when we've experienced a socially acceptable loss, such as the death of a loved one or a divorce. We're too ashamed or too unaware to give voice to the hidden grief that lingers in the shadows of our traumatic wounds. What we're afraid to accept is that our separation from safety, from peace, or from freedom was a loss in itself. Mm. It's a loss of innocence, the loss of a secure attachment, a peaceful childhood, a sense of inner safety. Those losses are hard to accept and hard to grieve. Mm. And it's 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 so interesting because grief. What I what I'm saying here is the grief of the loss of our innocence. Mm-hmm. And so, well, and to to the point of what I was saying also is it's acceptable to be grieving a loss of a loved one or a loss of a child or a loss of whatever job or anything. But what we never really live give ourselves the permission. Or even we, we we often are far too fa- afraid to touch into the truth that we have this innocence that we have to grieve mm. the loss of innocence that we have to grieve.
4: Yeah, I, th- I think we always equate grief with a, a specific event, like you're saying, the death or a divorce, mm. or and mm-hmm. it's we don't realize the ripple effects of so many things. I mean, I know people, you know, this last couple of years have lost so much and Mm. we think grief has to be something big, but there's so many grief, like little grievances or Mm. griefs that we go through. Um, I feel like on a daily basis, like I feel like I wake up, I think my heart is just that big and open, but I feel like I wake up to grief every day. Like there's something, it's just a piece of, it's a piece of life that, we yeah. don't we don't want to face, but it's there, and it, it can also break you open to something so sweet. Yeah. Like, there's love to me. Grief kind of lives right alongside of that beautiful, expansive space of love.
3: Yeah, and I, I really want to emphasize, my therapist helped me understand that being able to touch into grief is a sign that you've done a tremendous amount of work on yourself mm. because you... The decade that you've spent that I've, you know, the de- the decades I've spent working on myself have helped us get to the place where we can have the awareness that there's even something to grieve. Right. And it's that, you know, that loss of innocence. Uh, but grief also shows up for, just like you said, in, in 2020, we all had a lot of loss. And um, <clears throat> I'm still grieving something very big that happened to me in November. So I spent 2020... Doing IVF treatment to try mm-hmm. to conceive a second child, and I became pregnant after nine rounds of treatment, and I got a healthy embryo. Tested him, and was pregnant for five and a half months, wow. and then in in November I was told that the baby wasn't growing and he wasn't getting what he needed, and there was a lot of things wrong, and there was no it wasn't like I had a choice, which I'm grateful for.
1: Right,
3: and so I had to let that child go. And just this past week, I have decided that I am not going to try to have another child in any in any form. Mm. And while that feels good to be definitive and mm-hmm. to have that clarity and to, you know, have even attempted one more try, and there was a plan I had that was like, okay, if God wants me to do this, right. you know, one more round of IVF and a surrogate and the whole thing. And if it wasn't going to work, it was over and it's over. And so for me, I realized that while I'm really thriving and going through the grief with grace, to your point, it's going to come in and it's going to step out. And it's going to, you know, just like um, my girlfriend came over. She has a son that's two years younger than mine. And I gave her the, you know, I gave her the old stroller and I gave her the, you know, the toys and I gave her some clothes. And that was like a moment of grief because I'm like, oh, I'm not holding on to this anymore.
4: Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I feel like there's lost dreams. There's past versions of ourselves. I feel like there's even the versions that we didn't or weren't our best versions, I would say there's, there's something about those too to grieve because I mean, even with the growth that when we grow there's, and when you, when you know more and you, you experience more and you, you grow within yourself, there's even the the protector parts like the there's always something there to to grieve i feel yeah and that's been i think one of my biggest my biggest pieces is like okay i've had to grieve all of these different past versions of myself incl- including that loss of innocence for sure
3: yeah yeah grieving the, the past versions of ourselves that's a big one totally yeah Woo. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I want to touch back on spirituality for a moment. Like how how has your spiritual journey changed? I mean, I'm sure going through going through what you did with um with IVF and you like I feel like I'm sure every experience like that changes us and maybe maybe deepens sometimes maybe it it repels people away from their spiritual journey. I know for me, like sometimes I just don't it's it's almost too much for me to sit in it because of, of an experience that I've had, that I've had, that I will now have to face. So yeah. how is something like that, how does that change your own, or d- does it deepen your spirituality or how has that yeah. shifted for you? Well,
3: I think that it depends. It's, there's different seasons. And for me, when I, my spiritual practice was my savior for so many years. And mm-hmm. then at 36, I, I actually remembered, remembered a dissociated trauma which is what I write about in the book which is this 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 memory of of when my soul departed truly mm-hmm. and it was the memory of being uh, sexually abused as a child and in the early days of the early days like the first 2 years mm-hmm. <laughs> of that memory coming to fruition i was really disconnected spiritually like i felt out of my body i was it was really hard to sit and meditate it was really hard to to hear that connection And then in writing my book, The Universe Has Your Back, I almost like restored the connection. Like that book healed me on such Mm -hmm. a deep, soulful level. And I wrote it around that time of remembering the trauma. And so for me, the writing was a big portal back to spirit and just super, super aligning me because when you write for yourself first, you remind yourself of what you know to be true. And then, of course, that's going to have an impact on others. Uh, And then, you know, I wrote a bunch of other books after that and continued to remind myself and remind myself. And so now here today, that spiritual connection is extraordinary and it's it's so present. And when I had the loss of my son, Owen, I was able to witness, you know, once I got past the, I had to do a DNE and once I got past the surgery Mm. and sort of into the recovery the second week. I was like, holy shit, this is what you've been training for, you know? This is what you've been counseling women on for decades, and here you are really living it. And my faith just held me like a pillow. It was Mm -hmm. like I fell into this pillow of faith. And it was so loud and so strong, and I could feel the presence of that baby, and I— felt that there was another presence coming and now I'm, you know, clear that that presence may not be coming. It. It's just sort of letting it be guiding in, in and out mm-hmm. of 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 that sensation. And so the faith is a muscle. And the more we exercise it, the more it will be there for us. Mm, I love that.
4: It's so interesting. Your book came to me at of course the perfect time um, because repressed memories is something that's been something that's been coming up for me a lot lately. And I don't, I don't I actually went, when I started to have these memories come through, I don't remember clearly, which I know you've discussed too. Um, I actually started Googling it because I'm like, okay, is this a real thing? Am I making this up? Like, you know, I, I didn't know where to turn. And this was like maybe a couple of months ago. And then your book came out and I'm like, oh, there's someone (laughs) who's discussing this um, for the first, I mean, I really, like I said, I hadn't heard much about it. So I felt like for me, it was the first time someone was really speaking on repressed memories and how they can live in the body and how we might not, even when we start to reclaim those memories, um, how they might not fully come You know, and how that was a, you know, it's really a defense mechanism. It's a genius that our mind and our body Mm -hmm. can do this. But Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say thank you because, yeah, (laughs) you were really the first person who I've heard talk about that.
1: So thanks. Yeah, Yeah.
3: and I just want to, you know, I want to hold you in how scary it is. And I want to really just extend a tremendous amount of compassion to you and love to you because it's when you have a when you have a dissociated memory, that's exactly right. It's very beneficial for the period of time because it's not going to blow out your whole system and right. send you to a psych ward, you know, But eventually we kind of get our way to the psych ward in whatever form that comes because it's too much to bear in our body and in our in our life because it 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 well, it may be tucked away and locked up that memory, it still shows up in every single reaction we have in every single emotional reaction every single nervous system response and so Mm -hmm. that becomes very very hard to live with and then facing into the truth of those memories is is a whole other level of of trauma as well and so it sounds like you might be in the middle of kind of accepting and embracing and 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 it's um it's scary and I just want to acknowledge that it's very, very scary. It is. And, you know, I think that, and the good news is, is that you don't have to recover all the memories. Right. <laughs> and you don't have to see it all. And you don't have to, you know, you can heal the emotional disturbance through the practices I teach and I share about in, mm-hmm. in, in Happy Days, you know, EMDR, somatic experiencing, IFS. These are all beautiful practices that really work on a very subconscious spiritual level. And so I want to assure you that you don't have to remember everything. Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah. And that's, I think that's anybody out there who's listening, I think, you know, that may have a feeling that something mm-hmm. has happened to them or they, mm-hmm. they know that the trauma is there, but haven't, they don't have a full, full memory of it. I, yeah. I want, I just hope they hear, cause this is something I feel like I needed to hear is that you're not making it up and you're not crazy. Yep. And no. it's yeah. it's possible to re-experience trauma every day that you don't have that full full awareness of.
3: Yeah, and when and and so there, this very very important conversation. So glad that we're going here. So we will be reliving it every day until we process it, mm-hmm. because what it is is it's a moment in time where we went into the, such an extreme state of arousal because of this fear-based experience that happened. Then we froze and dissociated and checked out from it. But the the nervous system response is on a neural loop. Right. So it's just, it's like anything that triggers the feelings of being unsafe or out of control will just, boom, there it is again. There it is again. So we're reliving that trauma daily but it that's something so historical so it's like we may not be in that threat in this moment we're just you know the the internet just went out right but <laughs> that feels like such a threat that we go into this extreme place of hyperarousal and so and then that constant state of hyperarousal puts us into that parasympathetic that sympathetic nervous system which just mm-hmm. rocks our body rocks our energy levels rocks our relationships and so the thing that's really important now is to just very slowly, and that's why I think body based work is so valuable mm-hmm. when it comes to trauma recovery because to slowly. And I'm going to give you a few things that I want you to use right now in this period of your life. A whole heart holds, so like I love um, the that. Jin Jiuitsu holds. So putting mm-hmm. one of your hands on your heart and your other hand on your belly and just grounding with breath with a hold. And you could do the same with the heart with your with your hand on your head, on your forehead, and your hand on your belly and meditate in this position you know and whenever you notice yourself triggered and activated come back to this halt and breathe in that and di- diaphragmatic breath in that place and then another great one is just tapping on what's known as the gamut point <clears throat> it's the point this is an EFT it's emotional freedom technique and it's the point between your ring finger and your pinky finger and you would tap on that point and you could just say to yourself I am safe I am
4: safe.
3: I am safe. And then breathe and just say, I am safe. I am safe. And when I was in that, that period that you're referring to of just sort mm. of uncovering and being almost like you're catapulted back into it. It's terrifying. Yeah. This was a savior for me. I would just be in the car tapping away, you know. And it really, really helped me to just, just titrate in and out of that safety.
4: Yeah, well that's great too cuz you can do it. <laughs> you can do it in public. Anywhere. <laughs> and the hold
3: you can do anywhere. Yeah. And breath you have with you all the time and and you know, I think it's I think it's 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 also, you know, and it's 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 heartwarming to know you don't have to recover the full memory, you just have to mm. r- fully process right, the energetic disturbance. And on that incredibly powerful note, we are going to pause
4: for a breath, but we'll be right back with more Gabby Bernstein.
3: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily
5: to die for is available now listen for free on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
4: welcome back my friends gabby and i were just talking about processing repressed memories and trauma Yeah. I know one of the biggest pieces for me recently, like I went into full freeze this morning and I had no idea why all my body was telling me, it was like, I just want to be in a fetal position. So I Mm -hmm. literally, I said, you know, even if it's for 30 seconds, I'm going to give that piece of me what it needs. I'm going to go lay in a fetal position and it was, I was able to move through it, but it's, you know, one of the biggest pieces for me that I've learned is not going into story around things and not having to, like, you know, it's so easy for us to get in our head and so easy for us to create stories, you know, around these emotions. And one of the biggest things that I've learned is like, okay, there goes my story again, but what does my body need and how can I give it to it without having to tell a story about it? It's just yeah. this is what's here and this is what's needed and it can be just that simple.
3: Yeah. 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 It can just be noticing what's up and asking what it needs.
4: Sometimes I feel like though, when we ask what it needs, if that's not a question that we've asked ourselves a lot, sometimes we'll be <laughs> we'll be fumbling in the dark for that need. It's like, well, I I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that.
3: Yeah. Well, that's why I like um, those three questions of what do I notice about how I'm feeling right now, and this is something I use very proactively all throughout my day. I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. The other day I was was right before uh, Russia invaded in the Ukraine, and just, like the whole world is just in complete chaos and terror. Yeah. I was coming off of extreme output. I just launched my book, so I was putting coming off of extreme output. Um, and then I was parenting and you know living life, right. and and um, so I'm driving in the car with my kid, and my kid's in the back seat, and he's like screaming like Bruno, Bruno, you know, and to listen to Encanto, <laughs> <laughs> Bruno, mommy, Bruno, louder, <laughs> and I'm like freaking out, and I'm just, and all of a sudden I noticed this sort of familiar feeling that I hadn't had in a long time, and I was like, initially like okay, push it away and just keep driving, and you know put the music louder and push it down, and and then and then I was like this is just getting worse. And so then I did the practice in the car while driving with the Bruno song. And I said, <laughs> okay, what do I notice right now? I notice that there's anxiety. I notice that there's that part that's up, and it's really tense in my chest, and it's really clenching my jaw. And it's that old anxiety of feeling out of control. It's, it's historical anxiety. It's recent anxiety. What else do I know about it? I, I know. So I notice where it is in my body. Notice what it feels like. What do I know about it? It's, it's young right it's a girl she's she's really scared right now and then very quickly i said what do you need and she said i need box breath you know so breathing in for 4 <laughs> hold for 4 out for 4 hold for 4 and i just did it while i was driving my kid and had a miraculous shift in that moment and it's hard to go from the extreme anxiety to the box breath right but if mm-hmm. you start to just befriend right. it like i notice that, that it's there, and I notice what's up inside my system, and then I, what do I know about you, you know, what, what do you want, you know, what do you want me to know about you, and then what do you need, and so it's, it's just, it's a practice, and to your point, right away, you're gonna be like, I don't know what that part is, I don't know <laughs> what the hell she's talking about, I mean, I've been doing IFS for decades, so I, I have it in me, but it's, it's a practice of really just touching into what that part of you needs in that moment.
4: Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things that I've learned too is like, this is where story sometimes comes in and plays and creativity plays a huge part. It's like, okay, I'm just going to let my creativity tell me what this is right now. Like if I don't know what it needs, like, let's make, let's, let's create something and then let's trust that that is the thing. That's where Hmm. then it's like, then self comes in and it's like, okay. And that's where faith and their spiritual peace comes in. It's like, I'm going to trust that what just showed up was exactly what needed what I just created is what I need.
3: That's right. creativity is one of the qualities of self. And yeah. so and when you think about it, like creativity and anxiety can't coexist. Oh, I'm like, can they though? <laughs> when you're in a creative flow state, right, anxiety can dissipate.
4: Yeah, it definitely can. But I, I do feel like, for me at least, I, they, they can live alongside
3: each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anxiety can, get can be a driving force. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, but it's you know really surrendering to the creative process. It puts you into that flow state where that anxiety is not. That's the forefront. Yeah, for sure,
4: for sure. I love this conversation. Thank you so much oh, for oh coming my God. on here. Lily.
3: <laughs> uh. I really <laughs> want to hug you and I want to hang out with you. And I, would I love it. I just think that this is the I mean, I only like big talk. This is the only kind of conversation I want agreed. to agreed. <laughs> One of the great privileges of this time that we're in is that we get to connect with really soulful people in this way. And you are my people. It's Aww, so good to be friends with thank
4: you. Thank you. Do you live do you live in on the East Coast, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where well, are you?
4: I'm in LA. LA. Yeah. Okay, cool. Actually, I have one more question for you. Oh, good. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I always ask my guests because of course there's the music piece involved. I um I always ask my guests, what are your holy 5 songs? These could be these could be from yesterday, these could be from your life. Like what has inspired you and, you know, I feel like music is the sound, obviously the soundtrack to our lives. It it's what weaves everything together.
3: So What are your five? There's a few. Um, So, Luca, the Suzanne Vega song, My Name is Luca.
4: I don't know Um, that song.
3: Yeah. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. In (laughs) retrospect, it was such a big song for me as a kid, Mm. and I never knew why. I loved it.
2: Uh Uh-huh. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. If you hear something late
3: at night. And, you know, teenagers. Right. Like the emo teenagers. Right. And it was about a kid. I believe it's about a kid that was being abused upstairs. Oh, wow. And, you know, I never really That's dug so into the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. Big one for me. Um, I love. I love folk music so I love um Edie Burkel's song circle.
2: Me,
1: I'm a party a circle of friends, and we notice you don't come around. hmm
3: And I love um superstition, Stevie Wonder. really good happy song so good um i i love uh i love sigur ross i can't think of any of the names of their songs but oh my Sigur my is yes
4: yeah
3: they're the ones that, that sing
4: without words
3: basically that's right Well it's like Norwegian, I mean it's like another language. I don't know exactly. Yes. Um, I'm totally not giving any credit to what this music is. <laughs> but it um it's music that I meditate meditated to very you know when I was really deepening my meditation practice. And so just you know when you meditate to music, it's just like the tones can just like yes. suck you right in really quickly. Um a girlfriend of mine is called Jai Jagdish and she has extraordinary kundalini music and so she has a cover of Hallelujah that I birthed to. And so that, for me, is really extraordinary.
5: Hallelujah, Hallelujah.
4: That's perfect. Um, it's interesting because you know I've, I sing for everyone else, but it's rare that I've but I've but I've started to use my voice for my own healing, and. Hmm. Um, one of the things that comes up for me is, and it's been really, it's very fearful for me for me to share, is that I like to sing without words. And mm. so when you just mentioned, I can't think of how you pronounce their Sieger name. Sigur Ross. There you go, Sigur Ross. Um, someone turned me on to them not long ago. And it was the first time I had, had seen anyone do what I feel like I do in my privacy of just like, Making sound and creating song, but without words. Because sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like words can't express the fullness of like what I right. want to sound. And so, yeah, so interesting that you just brought that up because I just discovered them the other day.
3: I love that. I feel like you're supposed to do something with that.
4: I will. I do too. I feel like I'm supposed to do something with it too. I'm just, I think I'm just starting to be Kill able to even, first. yeah. Exactly. I'm first being able to heal with it, and then I'm let it heal you. And then I'm just first being able to talk about it. Like this is yeah, it's like such a private piece of me that I'm like, oh, I haven't. And it also feels like something I haven't shared with the world yet, and don't need to at the moment. Yeah, but
3: what I like so much about what you're saying is this concept: like our presence is our power, right? You know, we can't rely on our words. mm. Words, you know, words are words are very impactful and they have a lot of energy in their symbols. But words without the presence of that energy are kind of worthless, right? So yeah. it's like you're getting to almost like the the true soul of that energy mm-hmm. in, in 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 your art. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So Amazing. Cool. Thank you. Oh thank you. God. Thank you so much. And that, my friends, ends this really intense and I hope enlightening episode of Holy Human. I want to thank Gabby Bernstein for wading in such deep waters with me, and I would love to hear your thoughts about our discussion, so please share them with me in the comments wherever you're listening. I truly love hearing from you all. And on our next Holy Human, we're going to dive into some topics that are dear to my heart, and I know many of yours too, which is cultivating a functional, fulfilling, blended family while navigating the complications of step-parenting. I'll be joined by stepmom guru, Jamie Scrimgeour for some seriously honest and open conversation. But until then, please take care of yourselves and one another, and I love you. Holy Human with me, Leanne Rhymes, is a production of iHeartRadio. You'll find Holy Human with Leanne Rhymes on the iHeart app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get the podcasts that matter most to you.